I'm sure that I'm more sensitive to it because of my preparation this week, but I have a renewed appreciation for our worship together. It is a powerful thing. One year ago, I stepped up here to fill the pulpit for the first time. And if you were here that day, you remember I promised with 100% accuracy, I might add, that that would be my greatest sermon ever. (laughs) I will not make the same guarantee today. And... I know that there's been several people that have been faithfully praying for me this week. And so thank you for that. But one in particular challenged me to be bold from the pulpit today. So send your letters to Ron Widener. (laughs) Only the bad ones. I want to start today talking about some points that Wes gave us last week, starting off with God's covenants with his people. He mentioned God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12. And that was the one that God made telling Abraham that he would make from him a great nation. He would give him the promised land and From his people, he would bless the entire world. And God made that covenant walking through between the pieces of the animals himself. It was all on God. Nothing that Abraham or his descendants did would change that promise. But there was another covenant made with Moses and the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And that one, they had to hold up their end of the bargain. In essence, God said that if you keep my laws, if you are obedient to me, and if you love only me, then I will bless you, and things will go well for you. But if you do not, then I will punish you, I will correct you, in order that you will be turned back to me. And Wes laid out the history leading up to this point in Judges, And I want to make sure that we appreciate what God was trying to accomplish through all of that. He was trying to teach his people to rely on him. You think of the 40 years wandering in the desert every day, relying on him for their food, 
That was their only source of food. In the conquest of the Promised Land, victory after victory, improbable victory, God provided them. They had to rely on him, and that's what he wanted them to learn. But also, as you see God's sovereign and providential hand bringing Joseph into Egypt, providing sanctuary for his people, allowing them to flourish, and then to be enslaved. God was creating a separate and distinct people. His people. When they received his law, you read through the book of Leviticus and you think, why is this so strange? Why does God ask these people to do such strange things? Because God was teaching them, you are separate. You are not those people, the Canaanites. If you want to turn to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You are set apart. You are not to do as they do. Flip the page, chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And God is directing us today in the same way. The church is separate. The church is not those people. We are not the world. And the world whispers to us, calls us, tempts us that these things are okay. It's okay to watch those things. It's okay to listen to those things. That sin is okay. That divorce is normal. Homosexuality is normal. Abortion is normal. That's what the world whispers to us. And these days it seems it's more than a whisper. And we see in Judges that because the people failed to drive out the Canaanites, to remove 
that temptation. In Judges 2, the angel of the Lord, he says to the people, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And that is what worldliness is to us. It's a thorn in our side, and it's a snare to sin. And the consequences of that God has given us these examples as a warning. So Judges 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. And it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. So here we see a a pretty practical reason for these conflicts that we'll see coming up. You've got this new generation. They weren't experienced with the battles that their fathers had fought. And they needed to learn how to defend themselves from the threats all around them, from within. God could use their sin to prepare them for what was going to come next. So we read this and we try not... We try and think, what does God want us to know for today? And one of the questions that I thought of that came to my mind was, do we believe that we're in a war right now? Are we a battle-tested people? In Ephesians, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You're familiar with the passage. He's saying we better be dressed and prepared for the battle because we're in it right now. We know who wins the victory, but we still have to go through the fight. We still have to be a people of prayer. We have to be courageous 
in the face of the enemies of God. Then in verse 3, these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. For the testing of Israel. Now God doesn't test so he can find out. He already knows. He tests so we can find out because we don't know. God gives us opportunities to exercise faith and obedience. And then he promises we can make it through when we rely on him. And it says, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. And Wes touched on the question last week, how does that happen? You're talking about the generation of people who were witness to the miracles in Egypt. The wanderers in the desert who were fed by God, who raised the generation of people, who conquered not fully, but relied on God for victory in the conquest of the promised land. And the next generation where there was something lost, a failure, whether it was a failure of the generation before or the generation that grew up, the best answer would probably be both. But these are the people that witnessed God's miracles firsthand. And if it can happen to them, it can happen to us. So, three points that Wes made last week that you'll hear over and over again that are consistent throughout the book of Judges. He said, every generation must choose. God calls unlikely leaders 
And God can use anyone, even his enemies, to accomplish his will. So have those in your mind as we read about the first judges in the book. Here we have a generation that chose evil. They didn't rely on God. They didn't obey God. In fact, they turned from God and served and worshipped other gods. God had made a promise to them. We sang this morning, God is a promise keeper. Verse 8, this is the history of Othniel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Some say king of Aram. You're talking about northern Syria, somewhere on the border between Syria and Turkey. Okay, so this guy is a long way. He's come a long way down to subjugate the people of Israel. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. And how true is it that in a crisis or an affliction, when there's nowhere else to turn, even the hardest heart can be caused to cry out to God. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. I don't know what your mental image is of these guys, Caleb and Joshua, but these were the guys, the spies, the only two, that when they saw the inhabitants of the promised land, they said, when everyone else said, those guys are too tough, Caleb and Joshua said, the Lord is on our side, we can take them. And at that time, Caleb was 40 years old. He still had 40 years of wandering in the desert. So at the time of the conquest, you're talking about an 80-year-old man. But Caleb isn't what you think of an 80-year-old man. These guys were tough. These guys were grizzled veterans of combat, experienced, like I said, victory after victory. It wasn't like you, you conquered a king and then won the country. Each city was its own little city-state with its own king. And so you had to conquer them all. And I just have this picture of this 
gray-bearded guy with a, probably a scar across one eye. Just the toughest guy you've ever met. And it says, Othniel was Caleb's nephew, right? Here was a guy cut from the same cloth. Here was a guy that had the same grit. In the course of the conquest, they come to a city and Caleb says, whoever takes that city marries my daughter. And Othniel steps up to the plate and he says, I got this. And of course, he conquers the city and he marries the girl. And Othniel is, he's the baddest dude on the block. And so this is the guy that's the first judge of Israel. And it says, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. That phrase, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. The same is said of Gideon and of Samson. And this is a a supernatural event. It's It's like a superhero is created. But I want you to notice the order of the phrasing. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. Then he went out to war. He judged Israel first. He put right what was wrong. He provided that godly leadership to a nation that had gone astray. And under his leadership, it says that the land had rest. After he won the victory, the land had rest for 40 years. So obviously he put an end to those sins that had kindled God's anger in the first place. A lot of these guys, their judgeship is more than military. It's moral leadership. It's leadership to repentance. The problem is, as we'll read on, we see that it doesn't stick. In verse 12... This is the history of Ehud, the next judge. And the people of Israel did again, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years.
And when we read the story of Elijah and the miracles that he was a part of, and we get to Elijah in the cave, and God speaking in a still, small voice. That's his preferred method to speak to us. If we are perceptive enough to listen, if we are attuned to be able to hear it, and if that doesn't work, God will use ever louder, ever more drastic measures to get our attention until eventually we can be smacked up beside the head. And so we see the first period of oppression was eight years. This time, it's 18 years. And we can start to see the cycle of judges that will be repeated again and again and again. God's people disobey. They're oppressed. They cry out to God. He raises up a deliverer who wins the victory. There's repentance and a period of peace for a time until they fall back and go around again. And Ehud was the next deliverer. It says that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And it describes him as a left-handed man. But the translation from Hebrew, some have said more closely, uh, translates as a man shut off from the use of his right hand. So whether that was from birth, whether that was an injury, we don't know. But a man crippled in his right hand. What we do know is that the name of the tribe Benjamin means son of the right hand. And so I think that God gives us here a little glimpse into his appreciation of irony. And I think that if we were fluent in Hebrew, we would probably pick up on a lot more of that that we miss. But if you would have been allowed to put it to a vote at the time of who was going to be the next guy, who was going to be the next judge, Ehud, with a crippled hand, wouldn't even be on the ballot. So for 18 years, the Israelites around the area of Jericho were subject 
to Eglon, the king of Moab. And now, in the previous history, the king that oppressed during Othniel's time, they called Cushan Rishathaim. The name meant Cushan of the double wickedness. Right? The, the history writers, that, that wasn't his walking around name. That was the name that they give him. Right? It was an insult. And so here we have King Eglon, and the name means the fat calf. The calf ready for the slaughter. Another epithet ascribed to him by these writers of the history. If you're on the wrong side of these guys, they're not treating you well in their records. And it says that Ehud and his crew were sent to bring a tribute to the king. And so Ehud devises his plan and he crafts a blade. It says about a cubit in length, which is from the tip of your finger to your elbow, a dagger, which he conceals on his right thigh. And normally a fighting man is right-handed, his blade is slung on his left hip, and so the guards, as they inspect people coming into the presence of the king, are looking at people's left hips, no blades, good to go. And so Ehud and his party come into the presence of the king, he manages to avoid detection and goes through, goes through the requisite show of donating this tribute, donating this tribute to the king of Moab. And then they leave. And at this point, Ehud is in the good graces of the king. Right? He's just given him a gift, displayed the nation's subservience to him. And it says that he sends the rest of his party back home because he's going to take this next task on all by himself. And if this goes south, maybe he can save their skin and it just will fall on him. Now some translations say that he turns back at the quarries of Gilgal. But the ones that say he turns back at the idols at Gilgal, I think are better. Because Gilgal isn't just some place to the Israelites. Gilgal is the place when they crossed the Jordan, when God allowed them and parted the waters and brought them across the Jordan. Gilgal is the place 
where they camped, where they brought the stones out of the river, and Joshua arrayed a monument commemorating what God had done. Gilgal was the place where all of the men were circumcised that had been born after the Exodus. Gilgal was the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested and every day when they marched around Jericho, it returned to Gilgal. That was their base. That was their camp. As they conquered Judah's territory, that was their camp. In verse 2, or chapter 2, pardon me, it says that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum when he announced his judgment on the nation of Israel for their disobedience. Gilgal was a holy place. And so for Ehud to see the idols at Gilgal, Some places I read, they even suggest that these idols were carved out of the very stones that they had brought up out of the river. I read this as a galvanizing moment for Ehud. He already had his plan. He had already fashioned his blade. But at the idols at Gilgal, Ehud said, I will not abide this. And he turns back to accomplish what God had set before him, what God had raised him up to do. So he goes back to the king. He comes into the presence of the king and he says, I have a message from God for you, O king. The king says, everybody be quiet. I'm going to meet with this guy alone. Now, these people, the Moabites, the Amalekites, the Amorites, they were familiar to the Israelites. They were familial. These people were descendants of Lot or of Esau. They were related. And they were there around the area and saw what God did. They heard tales of what God did. They knew that the God of the Israelites was real. And so when Ehud says, I have a message from God, King Eglon takes this very seriously. And so 
Everybody leaves. Ehud is going to meet and deliver the message to King Eglon all alone. And he meets him, it says, in the cool roof chamber of his house or of the palace, which is just the structure on top where the king can sit in the shade and up in the wind where the breezes blow through. And they're all alone. And Ehud approaches the king. He says, I have a message for you. The king stands up to receive it. What he doesn't know is that the message is, your time as oppressor of Israel is done. And with his left hand, Ehud draws the blade from his right thigh and shoves it into King Eglon. And it says the strike, the thrust is so vicious that it runs him through. And the blade comes out the backside. And it's so deep that he doesn't withdraw the blade. And Eglon is so fat that the fat closes over the blade. And the contents of his bowels begin to spill out. And Ehud shuts the doors and locks them and walks out as though he's done delivering the message to the king. And the guards return and see the doors shut and they assume, well, the king is indisposed. The king is using the restroom. We shall wait. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait, and it says they wait to the point of embarrassment, and all the while giving Ehud time to escape. And finally, they unlock the doors and find their king lying dead on the floor. And Ehud, it says, escapes, and he hurries to the hill country of Ephraim. And he rallies the men blows a trumpet and he calls them to battle and look at what he says verse 28 follow me for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands Ehud recognizes it's not what he did this victory is God's This is probably the reason that Ehud was chosen as judge. One of them. Because Ehud directs the glory to God. So Ehud leads these men. And they go down to the fords of the Jordan. Now Moab is across the Jordan. Jericho is on the west side. The Moabites had taken over this territory. So effectively, they get around them and cut them off at the pass. You can't just cross the Jordan River at any place. This is like a natural choke point. Okay? And so the Moabites at Jericho, their king has been slain. The men of Israel have been raised up 
and they're coming to attack. And these guys say, we've got to get out of here. And they rush headlong into the ambush. And it says that 10,000 men, all vigorous and strong, a more poetic translation says that these guys were all lusty and all men of valor. Fighting men were slain and not a man escaped. And the victory was so significant that it says Israel had peace for 80 years afterwards. The last judge of the chapter, a man named Shamgar, he gets one sentence. And it doesn't even give him the honor of being titled as judge. But it says Shamgar, of Shamgar, it says, After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. So, some thoughts, some challenges to wrap this up. Starting with Shamgar. Shamgar used an ox goad as a weapon. An, an agricultural tool, the thing that they prod the oxes along with. Go. Uh, if you go to the circus and you see the guys, the elephant tenders, and they have that pointy stick with a little hook on the end, and they're directing the elephants, a tool in a much similar fashion, right, to guide animals. Shamgar uses that to slay 600 Philistines. Shades of Samson, the story to come. Shamgar doesn't wait until he has a sword. He doesn't wait until he has a shield. Shamgar uses what he has now. And when God calls us, we have a tendency to say or to respond with, I'm not ready yet. I don't think the time is right. God calls you to serve with what you have now. And God equips those that he calls. Secondly, God raised up King Eglon, it says. Don't miss that. God raised up King Eglon. God used the king of Mesopotamia. 
God can use anyone to accomplish his will. God can use any circumstance to accomplish his will. God can use tragedy. God can use disaster. As we sang this morning, God takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good. So how has God been able to use the last three months in your life? What has he shown you through this time? As I mentioned at the outset, it's given me a new appreciation for worshiping together. A new appreciation for being able to meet face to face. How about you? God can use people who are the obvious choice, like Othniel. The people everybody says, yeah, that guy should do it. But God loves to use the unexpected, the unlikely leader. Because the unlikely leader multiplies the glory that God receives. Because the victory is God's, not man's. And so we fall into one of those two categories. We're either the guy people expect or we're the guy people unexpect don't expect. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, he's not talking about me, you're missing it. And finally, every generation must choose. God has called us to be a separate people. You are not the world. We live in the world, but we cannot fall victim to its temptation. So what do you need to do different today? What do you need to do to take a stand for God? We are in a spiritual battle and we can't be on both sides. Let's pray.
pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.